Welcome to Everstage's Go-To Masters podcast, where we interview the GTM leaders from today's most dynamic companies. Their unique insights, hard-earned lessons, and innovative visions are the stories that we bring to you every week. I'm your host, Adil, the head of growth and dimension at Everstage. Joining us today, this is a leader who has truly mastered the art of global expansion. Simon Chahuk, the global expansion leader from Clare. Welcome to the show, Simon. We're thrilled to have you with us. Could you kick things off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey with Clary so far? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm hugely delighted to be on the podcast with you today. My name is Samir, like you've mentioned, and I work at Clary, part of the expansion team here in Europe. Quick background on me. I'm originally from Switzerland, moved to the UK a couple of years back. I started my career in consulting at Accenture, doing global transformation projects, moved on to Salesforce, big CRM player that probably all listeners know, and have at one point decided to go into startup land, which was in January 2020 to launch Clary in EMEA. And it's been a fun journey since building the foundations here for us to scale globally. That's a great story. Like, Who knows? We might not be successful. We might have all to go back to our other jobs in a couple of months. But actually, we were quite successful in the first few months already. And you know, in March, uh, as the pandemic really hit in, in Europe as well, we knew that we probably don't need an office. And we were pretty happy not having signed any office leases uh, that would then cost us thousands of dollars as we, as we build Clary. So we've been remote first pretty much since the start, and we still are. So, like, how does it, like, you know, I think you started yourself as uh, hiring the sales engineering team, building it, and then slowly taking up, like, you know, operations, partnerships, and today international growth. Like, so how has how that journey has been so fast? Yeah, so it's it's very uh, nimble, I would say, how, how we started Clary in Europe, because it, it, is, it is hard to do global expansion. And as a, as a founder in California, so Clary was founded around 10 years ago in California, uh, helping sales and revenue leaders get more precision around revenue. And in Europe, this was pretty new. So we didn't know as we started Nimble. And for the first year, it was just the four, then later on five of us, and just trying to build pipeline, sign some customers. I was the only SE doing SE work, doing post-sales work as well. Lots of lots of hats in a startup. And then in the second year, we started expanding because we signed the first customers, we had plenty of inbound as well that started coming in and we expanded the teams. We built a marketing function, the post-sales function. I hired the sales engineering team. And with that also came questions, where next? Where's the potential? Where is there more uh, low-hanging fruit for us to go after? And that's when I started taking on different duties around our strategy, working with our U.S. headquarter in RevOps, asking, is it Germany? Is it France? Do we have to open an office there? Do we not have to open an office to serve the market? And so the, the, the responsibilities grew gradually over time. And it's been fun. It's been fun. Like, like many say, when you're in a startup, you're always growing. And, and that's been the case for me, certainly. So I've appreciated that opportunity. And and I have a very interesting strategy question for you. So most of the companies, at least in the SaaS world, when we have seen is usually they try to dip the toe in the Europe markets with something like a partnership agreement or something because they want to expand with partners because there is a localization risk, there is translation risk. And then once they've proven that model, it works and they're able to acquire customers. Then we've seen them start like, you know, hey, go build a team and like, you know, get people because we can sell into this market. So how is that? Like, do you have any, like, you know, details into what's that decision being made at Clary or how is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think such an interesting way. I think there's as many ways to expand into Europe or any market as there's you know companies and their products because there's there's you know a few mistakes that you can make, um, but there's also many different nuances for every company and how they look at expansion in Europe. Partnerships is definitely a strong anchor for people to kind of get traction in the market, get more access. For us, that's been sort of the second chapter in EMEA. The first chapter was done with the team locally. And I'll tell you in a second why I think that was a good decision. But now as we're expanding and growing across, you know, we are 16 countries at the moment with a few customers all over Europe. And that's been very exciting. And I think the next level of scale we will achieve with unlocking partners, be it private equity partners that bring clarity into their portfolio companies to run more efficient commercial operations, or with technology partners that we're doing co-selling with. That's an exciting path. But we started with people on the ground because what that advantage is that you have such close feedback loops with headquarter. You can really listen intently to local needs and test your value proposition. And that's been, I think, a really important thing to do at the start. With partners, you have a bit of a degree of separation. We first proved out the model that there is demand in Europe. This is a global product that works globally for many companies and many industries. And signed our first, you know, over 100 customers, I think, in, in, in the first couple of years. And we see that, hey, this is working. We have a reputation. We have a brand also in Europe now. So let's work on the partner channels. Let's start exploring those. Let's accelerate our growth. So that's been kind of our plan. I think it depends really on product to product. So what I did with Clary, what we've done as a team, doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. But it's been our strategy, and I think it's worked well. Yeah, I think given a very great point, I think it's important to not have that isolation from your customers, right? Because your partners are going to be protecting their accounts. They don't want to expose everything fully to you. They want all communications to go through them. And some partners even do the invoicing through them, right? Hey, the customer will pay me, I'll pay you kind of a model. So I think uh, at least it has worked out for you folks, I guess. The model yeah. of getting down first and then figuring out. And uh, I want to go back to something you spoke about, private equity partners to deliver value. How does that work? I've never heard about private equity partners to like you know uh, build a business model for a SaaS company. How, how, how do you come across that idea? Yeah, absolutely. It's been something that's, I think, naturally evolved within Clary, and it's just something we've also started doing in Europe. I think when you when you think about private equity, you know they buy and sell companies. They buy them in a certain shape. They think they could do better. They, they think there's more potential, and most of the time, it's the potential around better operating, getting more efficiency and processes, changing out some of the management and maybe some of the sales uh, teams to accelerate. It's really that they change the fundamental product. So how they do this is you know people process technology so yeah you swap out some people that's fine you look at the processes you maybe have consultants come in you reshape how you're operating but it's also a technology that's a huge enabler in getting that change done and increasing the efficiency increasing how they run revenue uh, across all the go-to-market functions and that's where clary comes in so we partner with the likes of Toma bravo and others in the industry and in europe with other private equity firms and it's been extremely interesting to see that they want to bring in technology like us to push it to their chief revenue officers, VPs of sales, to say, hey, look, this will help you accelerate the commercial growth along that plan that we've built when we bought you guys. And if we follow that plan, when we leverage the software, 
we can accelerate that and we can sell the company in a couple of years' time for the return that we're expecting or even more. So that's where we partner with these companies to help them with best practices and, and with our software to, to achieve revenue precision and improve their revenue across the teams. That's such an innovative approach there. So I think like, you know, you should we should probably do a separate podcast around that. Yeah, happy to. I mean, that's yeah, uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. Awesome. And uh, let's let's go to the core, right? Like, how, how is it building a sales engineering team in Europe, right? Like, I think there is a lot of talent distributed across Europe. So, how how did it feel like you know getting hiring? Did you hire across all these regions and then figure out a remote way of coaching everyone and getting them trained? Because when it comes to sales engineering, they are only as good as how they understand the product, how they are trained on as well, right? And what kind of enablement that they have as well. So, how was that experience? Sorry. Yeah, I think so. Regardless of where you're hiring, so so our, our SEs are based UK based, and and you know remote in the UK. So I have a person in Liverpool, someone in London, and as a remote first company, I think we're already set up in a way that enables people to work from anywhere and also to enable them from anywhere effectively. And I think that's really helps, right? Because if you're set up as a company with offices and you hire somebody far away, thousands of miles, it will be harder to get them on board. And I think it's the hybrid stuff is the hardest when you have some people in the office and some people not, then you really need to be very conscious around how you manage that. But for us, it's we're full remote. All stuff happens on Slack, on you know Google Slides and images, on our different tools that we use. And, and that made it easy to onboard people. Now, what, what we've done in Europe is for all the functions is, you know, we, we take from the US, from our headquarter, what's good ready, what's worked, the whole infrastructure, and we just tweak it to our needs. So for the SEs and the enablement, for example, is you know, I leverage the US stuff. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Why would I? But I do tailor it to the local needs when I work with my, my team and I say, Guys, there's a, a gap in our knowledge because privacy is much more important in Europe when we are capturing activities and clarity and we show all the emails going back and forth. And it's really helpful for the sales leaders to know what's happened and you know how a deal is going. But the questions you get from a buyer is, what about GDPR? What about the data? Where it's going? Questions you are less likely to get in the U.S., and that's where I train the SEs more. So take what's good in the US already, take that as a baseline and then evolve that. And the same happens as well for marketing, for customer success, uh, for sales. And that's worked really well for our approach. And being remote first, it became quite easy to enable the team no matter where they are. And yeah, I mean, obviously you spoke about the elephant in the room, privacy in the European yeah. market. So. Uh, like I think the overall GTM strategy, the outbounding, the media motion, everything becomes much, much more difficult when you have all these compliances and policies. Right? And obviously they are for good reasons or bad reasons, that's debatable. But basically, how do you handle that? Like, you know, with all those policies in place, how do you do your go-to-market initiatives? Yeah, it's more challenging, of course, since GDPR and other, other uh, regulations have been introduced. And it just takes more patience to build out a rich contact database of people you can reach out to. Uh, what's really helped us is, of course, you have the outbounding and you use the data that you have and you try and build the database up. That's one aspect. But what's really helped us, especially the early traction, as people think about starting in Europe, is create lighthouse customers that become true champions and help them be extremely successful and what happens then in tech, especially because we sell a lot to tech companies, is there's always movement. People are VP of sales here. They become a CRO somewhere else. 
And if you build a good relationship with them and they get value from your product, they will buy you again or they will advocate for you in other ways in the industry. And that's what helped us from the first few customers I remember in Europe, maybe the first dozen or so in the first six months. It was amazing that they, what they would say about us going to a conference and speak for us, uh, join us at the fireside chat, join us at the dinner with prospects and really say, I got so much value from Clary. It's changed the way I work. I don't have to be in spreadsheets on a Sunday night. And that reputation spreads and you create that critical mass that then becomes really strong momentum one year, two years, three years in. So I think, yes, the contacts, GDPR, privacy, you have to work within the framework of those regulations. And you have to almost find like these, these other ways to unlock the market potential, build your brand. And it's amazing. I mean, three years ago when I joined, we had we we had a hard time even filling a small room. We had a few people that used us at American companies at the kind of UK location. And, and that was kind of cool. And then some consultants and other people. And then last week we had our CEO over in town. And we filled the room with almost 100 people without much issue. And they were true customers. They've used us. They see the value. They speak at the panel. And that's momentum you build, not because you've got a better contact database and things like that. It's because we build true advocacy within our Lighthouse customers by making them hyper-successful. So that's been a few things, I think, to consider uh, maybe for, for listeners here as they think about Europe. You know, it's the contact database, the marketing automation, set up that engine, yes, but also really think about the relationships you're building with your first customers. Basically, every customer is so valuable in Europe compared to US where you just have to focus on advocacy for them to build your business. Exactly, especially as you're starting out, it's so important. Got it. Clary's expansion in the UK is a significant part of its global strategy. Can you provide some insights into how the UK territory is set up and segmented at Clary? I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know about the groundwork, the planning that goes into, you know, such a significant overseas operation. Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably pretty similar to many tech companies out there selling into different markets and including EMEA. We, you know, split out by company size where you have a you know, emerging market segment until a certain threshold of employees. Then you have a commercial, mid-market, all the way to enterprise. So we segment by company size. Uh, we look at it by geo as well because our focus is UK and Ireland at this point. Mm-hmm. And we also sell across Europe. I think what's what's important is uh, how, how and why we've done this is because we sell, at the start, we sold especially, especially to um tech companies, and they are quite similar across the continent. If you're selling to a SaaS company in Barcelona, in Berlin, in London, they are pretty tech savvy. They all speak English. They know software tools, and they don't expect you know localization. You don't have to educate them too much on the tech stack. And and they see the value in your solution pretty quick as well. So it's been easy to have English-speaking salespeople based in or around London selling to a company in Barcelona or, or, or Zurich or Berlin. So that's been quite good. Now, as we've expanded, we started selling to others. So the bigger focus has become the UK to sell to non-tech companies like in publishing and manufacturing, whatever the case might be, and we'll expand then into others as well. So the primary focus was not necessarily geographic, it was more industry. And then the second, we're now starting to look at more industries, but starting in one ge- geography to start with. And and in terms of like the employee size differentiators that you spoke about, right? Like, could you clarify like you know what is commercial, what is mid market for Clary? 
Yeah, I think uh, so. I think enterprise is within a thousand plus at the moment. Commercial is less than a thousand, and then for some of the teams we do emerging, which is under I think 150, if I remember right. I think I, it's been changing a little bit. We've been experimenting with the with the thresholds, uh, but the 1,000 mark is kind of a nice one in Europe that we've that we've picked to work quite well to differentiate enterprise and commercial. Yeah. It's always such a moving metric in every company that it helps to have a ballpark in mind on what the best in the business are doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I want to like, you know, segue a little into one of my topics, right? Like, which is uh, around sales engineers in general, right? Yeah. So I've usually like, you know, been part of a few communities and also work with them a lot. Like usually sales engineers are one of the most underappreciated roles in the company with sales getting most of the credits usually. So as a sales engineering leader, like, you know, how do you keep everyone motivated and focused today? And how, how do you plan that happen? Well, I'm I'm always uh, happy to talk about sales engineering, one of my favorite functions in the business, of course. And you're right, in many organizations, underappreciated in terms of the value they bring to the go-to-market teams. I'm happy to say that at Clary, that's not the case. I think we have a highly appreciated sales engineering team from all go-to-market teams and including leadership with the CRO. And that's nice. And that's creating a great partnership also downstream then. You know, the CRO, our CRO used to be actually a sales engineer at the very start of his career, uh, which probably helps a little bit. Um, but it's it's fantastic because it creates better, better partnerships for AEs and SEs also downstream in, in the go-to-market teams. I think it's important to to appreciate the value and work together because I think you win more, you win better, and you win bigger. If you engage effectively with a, with your SE or solution consultant, pre-sales engineer, however you uh, name the title exactly, because they bring so much to the table, especially in a in a product like a Clary or something that's you know not as hyper technical, where you know you can get interesting inputs from a salesperson. We sell sales technology, so a salesperson naturally will have input to that. But also as SEs, we always get exposed to many many customers and many many use cases. And we can bring ideas in. And I think there is a huge potential in bringing that collaboration together. It probably varies if you have a deeply technical cybersecurity product. Maybe the salesperson will not be able to contribute as much. It'll be a different dynamic. But in many products, I think it's great to collaborate very closely together and win more together. And I'm, I'm glad at Clary we, we have a really good collaboration. And I always, always encourage people to you know work with their AEs, their sales counterparts, SE leaders to work with sales leaders very closely and, and try and do the best work they can together to unlock the most value. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing to hear that something like that is happening in Clary. I think that's how the industry should evolve forward. I think sales engineering plays as much role when you're selling a product like this, right? Where you need to have industry context. You need to have all those like, you know, technology context before selling the product fully. Absolutely. Awesome. So like, uh, yeah, before the interview, I was going through your profile and saw something very interesting. SaaS is churning more than winning. Like, do you, do you want to explain that? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was a post I think I did a couple of days ago on LinkedIn. And this was just from some conversations I've had with people in the industry. We, we again, sell a lot to tech companies. I have lots of people that I work with or friends in tech. And everybody's like, wow, SaaS is very tough right now. We see earnings this week. You know, stocks are dropping 20 plus percent. 
And it seems like the world is on fire in some companies. And then you have other companies like uh, Salesforce and others, you know, some are really strong earnings. And you're thinking, well, what does this mean? Like what's happening? And and what's happening in this environment, I think, is there's much more scrutiny in deals. There's much more scrutiny in companies on their growth rates, on the margin profile that they have, on the cost base and how they're growing. Are they growing efficiently? And many of the companies are waking up to uh, a nightmare where they see their product is maybe just a nice to have. And it's the first list, first on the list that the CFO asks, why do we need this? And strikes it. And so I've seen some companies where they're churning more than they're winning and contracting overall ARR. You know, they maybe had 30 million 18 months ago, today they only have 22. Or they had 60 million, today they're only 40 something. And that's pretty brutal. If every quarter you're maybe signing 2 million and you're losing four you're churning for and it should put things a bit into perspective for those companies that are still growing uh because you know startups they might say look we have 10 20 percent growth it's not the 50 60 70 we had or 100 percent growth we had before but you're still growing and some others are actually doing much much worse so put that into perspective as well in the wider market and be ready for some toughness for the next you know still six or 12 months until things recover and that's just the nature of the market right now. So I think I, I posted on LinkedIn because I was trying to put things a bit in perspective. If people think, oh, it's not the same big party it was in 2021 and 2022. It's a bit different this this time around in 2023. And that's okay. You know, you go up and down in cycles and you should be able to place yourself on the, on the scale. Like how bad is it really compared to others right now? Not how is it different from a year or two ago? So that's what the post was about. Yeah. Yeah. I think... There has been a regime change overall from how it was like, you know, two years ago to right now. And I think people have to be more sensitive to that. In general, like what you said, I think everyone can't have the same growth forever, right? Like, who's growing? Like, who, who are they, who's buying them? Yeah. This is such a nice uh, insight. And I want to take that, like, you know, into the deeper, like, you know, a discussion around if there are challenges like this, that companies are, like, you know, scrutinizing every purchase to a longer extent, then basically, how does forecasting, like, you know, change in such a scenario, right? Like, how, how does you, like, you know, as a revenue operations and a growth leader, you should be forecasting your revenue for the quarter because everyone expects you to, like, you know, commit to a number and go hit it. But, like, you know, people are tough to negotiate in current terms. So how do you do that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think it's probably more important than it was ever before. Forecasting right now is so hard because there's uncertainty in the market overall. You're still getting used to this new environment. And you know where it all starts is at the level of looking at the deals, the first-line manager having effective rigorous one-to-ones with their sales reps are you following our sales methodology whichever it is you're using medpick and others are you locking in next steps do you have a meeting coming up are you working with your se effectively have you worked with marketing around your abm that is much more important than maybe before where there's lots of inbound you're not too worried about your pipeline and you're doing pretty well you're hitting your number right now it's a different environment and it's just back to the basics that we all know that we just have to be much more rigorous um, this time around. And as you build that good foundation of data and understanding of, of your deals and have effective one-to-ones as a manager with your team, you can forecast more confidently. And it's okay to forecast also not amazing growth and to maybe forecast below your actual number, but it's bad to get surprised negative way at the end of the quarter. 
CROs right now that we talk to as well, they are happy to have a product like, like Clary. We just pitch about Clary, but it's they're really happy to have our solution as well because it gives them visibility early on in the quarter to warn the board, hey, I might miss my number. And I can see that already in week three. And that means the CRO is in control of their revenue. And that is much more effective in running the company and much better for them than being surprised. Nobody likes surprises. If it's if if something's not going as well, let's work on how we get through this tough economic cycle and not get surprised at the end. And that's where forecasting is much more important than before. And it all starts with the data that you get from the reps, the effective one-to-ones, how you and then how you run revenue all the way up to the CRO. That's a bit of context there because it's yeah, much more important, I think, than, than it used to be. And hopefully many will take notes and get more rigorous around their sales processes. Absolutely. I, I think I learned a lot about like, you know, that over the last two years where it's more about the process because the results aren't going to be that easy to acquire anymore. It's, it's, it's getting a tough market. So you have to figure out a way to get that going and ensure like, you know, you're tracking everything. Like, you know, when is the next meeting? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what's the next action item? When have, have we set up the next meeting? Like, you know, uh, on a call, because once people go to emails, a lot of times, like, you know, you're not going to be able to get them to reply for the next email. Right. So it's, it's, I think forecasting is going to be as crucial as it's ever been, right? Because even if it's going to be a bad scenario, if you're able to predict it's going to be a bad scenario, at least it's not going to be such a rough landing, right? That's exactly it. Awesome. And yeah, I think uh, I learned a lot today, Sami. So and we have a few closing questions for the podcast. So I'm going to hit you, like, you know, three of them right away. Amazing. Let's so, do it. Number one, are there any books that you would recommend for someone to scale their career in operations, growth, expansion? Oh, book recommendations. Always love good book recommendations. Um, What have I read that I really enjoyed? I think one is generally in life, which is super useful book I read with Atomic Habits. That's one that's great. And it's good for not just personal, you know, you want to do more exercise or read more or sleep better. It's also good in, in your professional life, I think. So Atomic Habits is one of my big favorites. That's really helped me, I think. Yeah, that's such a favorite book for me as well. I think uh, I used that to, like, you know, create those non-failures, right? Like you just ensure you're starting something no matter what so that you, like, you know, keep the process going. Amazing. What else? Yeah, so that- uh, what else? I think I, I mean, I, I like reading kind of these these business books just because I like get inspired about you know stories from other entrepreneurs. So I've probably read all the all the ones, the famous one like the Shoe Dog on the Nike story. I've read Mark Benioff's books. I've I've read um, the Hard Things About Hard Things, uh, which is an amazing book as well. So there's a few of these. Of course, it's it's just interesting, entertaining stories, and there's always a few lessons you can take away for your career and your journey, especially in startups. So that's a few more recommendations there. Great, great, great recommendations. Second question, Samir, if you are not in like, you know, an operations or in SaaS field, where else would you be? If I was not in SaaS, where would I be? I I probably have, that's a hard question. That's a very hard question. I think I, I, I really enjoy, you know, company building, helping entrepreneurs change. I mean, it's from from the very start in my kind of, even when I studied, 
it was always a combination of business and technology, how to bring innovation to to uh, to the world. I'm pretty passionate about, you know, kind of how it, you know, on the economic level, it improves companies, not just kind of balance sheets, it improves the economy, it creates better jobs. So I'm a bit of an economics geek as well. So I might be, I don't know, a lecturer somewhere teaching about economics and the growth and then what the role innovation plays in that. But I like much more to be an operator in a startup, to be honest, if I if I had to choose at this point. Got it. And final one, like, you know, where can an audience connect you and learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody can find me on LinkedIn, just Samir Jahik. There's not too many uh, with my name on LinkedIn. I also have my newsletter on Substack. It's morevalue.substack.com. And if anybody's, of course, interested to learn more about Clary and what we do, it's just clary.com. But you can also just reach out directly to me if you want to learn more. That's how you can reach me. Awesome. Th- thanks a lot for coming again on this podcast, Samir. I had a wonderful time hosting you and I learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners also learned a lot from this session. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this insightful episode of Code to Masters. A massive thank you to Samir for sharing his experiences and valuable insights. It is truly enlightening to learn about the strategies Clary used to navigate their global expansion and their approach towards GDM strategy in general. Remember, you can tune in every week to learn more from game changers driving hypergrowth companies across the globe. Code to Masters is brought to you by Everstage, your trusted partner for transforming the way businesses handle sales compensation. I'm your host Adit from Everstate, signing off. Remember to stay curious, stay inspired and keep growing.